You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Um, we begin today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Yaluk Ut Willam, who are part of the Bunwarung, one of the five major groups of the Kulin Nation. Yaluk Ut Willam means people of the river camp. They are connected with the coastal land at the head of Port Phillip Bay. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island, Islander people present today. First peoples of this continent have existed for over 80,000 years on this land with sophisticated agricultural methods, technologies, art, philosophy and astronomy that have enabled them to thrive on this continent and importantly, doing that in peace. No other civilization on earth can claim a sustained connection to a country like that and also in a time of peace. I want to acknowledge that the process of colonization continues to this day and that all of us here who are settlers derive benefit from the 230 year long colonial project. Sovereignty was never ceded and this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And it's my hope that this acknowledgement of country, tradition, practice, connection remains central throughout this conversation today. My name's Giselle Diego and I'm one of the three co-founders of Either Or, along with Bryn and Ed. So thank you so much for joining us. It's like quite overwhelming to see so many of your faces here. Um, and so before we start the conversation, I want to introduce the panel, but also everyone who's participated in making uh, this event uh, come to life. Um, so first, I want to introduce Carly Beck, aka Calm B, uh, our DJ for the evening. So let's give it up for Carly. Thanks for starting us off on the right foot. <laughs> Carly is a proud one-year woman, and in addition to being an excellent DJ, she's a paralegal and radio presenter based in Melbourne. Um, we also have here on t to my left Isabel Murphy Walsh. Morphy, a, oh, sorry, no, Isabel Morphy. Colonial hangover, we changed our name, sorry. No, fair enough. <laughs> Isabel Morphy Walsh, a proud Nirembaluk woman from the Tunwurung people. She's a lover of anecdote, an artist, an activist, an educator, a singer, a storyteller and weaver. She spent her life working with her community and culture with particular emphasis on history, culture, country and its importance today. Her artwork can be found in a state collection, over walls that she passes or on the bodies of people she knows. For the past few years, Isabel has earned her bread and butter by working with Museums Victoria, focusing on First Peoples cultures, communities, histories and engagement. And we're really lucky to have Isabel here for this conversation today. It's the first time I've heard that. It's a bit wanky, but thank you. <laughs> it's always weird having just, someone I else. Wrote it. I, I wrote it, but it, it's, a bit, it's a bit different hearing it, isn't it? <laughs> we're doing a, you know, the test run. Yep, no, thank you. So Janet, who's uh, the other member of our panel, Janet Belitho, is deeply engaged with changes with changing places of the of the Lower Yarra, the Port, Port Melbourne, Docklands, and Fisherman's Bend. Always exploring by bike, on foot, and in the archives, she delves into the history, present, and future of these places. She shares her observations on her website, Port Places, and she also leads walking explorations through Port um, through Port Places as well. Uh, she's currently a member of the Fisherman's Bend Development Board and she's a former councillor and mayor of the city of Port Phillip. 
and she's on the board of Westgate Biodiversity, the Billy Nursery and Landcare, and the Yarra Riverkeeper Association. And having participated in one of Janet's walking tours before, I can highly recommend them. Um, she has an incredible way of weaving stories through through that walking tour, so um, definitely find something to put on your to-do list. I'm going to introduce Bryn uh, next. So Bryn is the other co-founder of Either Or, and he's a strategic urban planner with the Victorian government, working on Melbourne's largest renewal areas and priority precincts, including Fisherman's Bend. And finally, the last member of our Either Or team is Ed Service, who's just here in front of us today. Um, and Ed has a long background in the arts, events, street festivals and music, and more recently delving into the realms of supporting creative ecologies and urban planning. So that's our uh, team and panel for today. Um, I'm going to hand over to Bryn just to give a bit of background about who we are and what Either All's about. Yeah, thanks, Giselle. And thank you so much for everyone to uh, come in today. Uh, we've seen a few of you at past events, but there's a lot more here than we've had before. And there's a lot of faces we haven't seen before. So we're really thrilled to welcome you um, to this. And, and I hope you enjoy kind of what our offer is. Um, personally, for me, I'm, I'm from Melbourne, um, but I've spent a fair bit of time living overseas, and this is a pretty surreal moment to uh, what started as a, an idea on a napkin in Portugal, uh, slightly boozed drawing um, that I still have of this boat that would be turned into a, a bar. To see that against the CBD skyline in the background, it's um, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit, a bit of an odd one for me. So, yeah, hi there. Uh, but. But I guess what that's kind of that idea of taking the concepts, sorry, the concept of taking ideas and turning them into the realities is really what has binded uh, Ed, Giselle and myself on this project and it's been really a pleasure working with them, bringing different skills to this. To this. Uh, we are all urban planners by background, so a, quite an interest in place and its transition and its story and its, um, I guess, its origins and where it's going. Um, but we're also very interested in temperancy and this kind of notion that we're only ever here for a little bit um, and you know, our, little, our little speck in that long period of time in, in cities and, and countries is a kind of unique experience to us um, but part of a much longer continuum. So the boat's really about unravelling and, un uh, and, un and digging and finding those stories of place and people and communities um, but it's also about exploration so we do try to do these across different parts of the city um, and if you follow us on our Instagram or our Facebook, we do other events and we'll, we'll take you to places you wouldn't normally go and hopefully can tell you a bit about why we're there and, and what was there before us and, and maybe what might be there in the future. Um, so the boat kind of works perfectly for that because, you know, boats, in my mind anyway, are all about exploration and um, that's kind of what we want to do in our own home city as well. Um, I won't go along on about it anymore, but find us after the, after the talk and we'll be happy to talk to you more about either or. Um, the name is kind of, as, as it sounds, that place is either as it is or it could be something quite different. It's a pun. Uh, it is quite dangerous with boat, bar, boat bars, um, making too many boat-related puns. But, um, yeah, we, I think we, we walked the line finally. Yeah, so thanks for coming. We really restrained ourselves on the puns. So uh, <laughs> we're on a pun, a pun uh, quota. Uh, so today's discussion is not your usual panel format. Um, we're not here to answer a specific question, but really it's to open up a conversation. If you walk away tonight with more questions or a head full of unravelling threads, then I think we've succeeded. When you think about conversations, um, we often talk about different threads. You know, you want to follow a thread in a conversation. Um, and so we kind of took that idea and sort of brought it to life with uh, this net that we have here. Um, and you can come and get a closer look at the end of the talk. And so it, 
in, in this net, we've got images, quotes, ideas, and reflections. And the threads have a dual function. They represent the different directions this conversation could go, a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure. But each thread also represents what ties that person to place. I don't want to start by defining what we mean by place because throughout the course of this conversation, I want each panel, panel member to bring their own meaning to it and what makes them feel connected to place. And so we'll be pulling out these threads to unravel the conversation. We'll have some time at the end, but not for questions. I want to invite you to consider what it is that ties you to place and think about whether you'd be comfortable sharing that with the group uh, at the end of the talk. We're also going to leave the net out uh, on the table that's just over there uh, and there's some cards and different bits of fabric and markers and so if you feel inspired to share um, a quote, a, a memory, um, an image, you want to draw something and add it to our net, we'd be uh, so honoured to have you um, add to it. So that's enough from me, that's going to be the most talking I'll do. I want to invite Isabel to start us off um, and pick at the first thread for our conversation. So... Um Beginnings is, is always tricky when you give me a microphone because uh, I have so many things I always want to talk about. But um, as is the practice of my people, I'm going to explain to you who I am and why I'm here. Um, my name is Isabel Papadruk Morphy Walsh and I'm a very proud Nirambalik woman from the Dunwurrung peoples. My land starts at the Great Dividing Range. It goes up just past, um, depends where you feel about the border, Benalla over to the King Lake region where the 2009 bushfires were and then back over to the Ovens River um, on the other side. So I like to think of my um, land as smack bang in the centre of Victoria. Um, I think, I think this, is, oh, this is always how I start every talk um, and it's particularly relevant to this one but the reason that I tell you all is that I think that my land is smack bang in the centre of Victoria. It's because actually I really think it's smack bang in the centre of the world. Um, and I really, really hope you all have a piece of earth that you feel that way around. Uh, you might not have the same connection to that country that, you know, my mob will. But, like, if, if, you, don't if you don't have that feeling, man, you've got to go find a patch. Like, you've got to go find one. <laughs> um, but so, yes, where do I start? Giselle asked me to start. And um, I, I actually struggled for, for two reasons. Because, um, one, culturally it's super important to explain who we are. Um, and why it is we're allowed to talk. Um, but also, too, it's really important to honour and respect the place that you're in. So I am a Kulin Nations woman, um, but very obviously, I mean, maybe not to use because you don't know the lands, but maybe you do. Um, uh, but this is not my land. I'm not a Wurundjeri woman. I'm not a Bunwurrung woman. Um, they, are, they are kin to, my, to me. We have the same religious and, and, and uh, socioeconomic beliefs. In fact, there are parts of their land that... Um, they have, have so Northcote, Northcote is um, my people's place on this land um, so that we can do business. And they have, they have land on, on, on our place that we leave aside for them. Um, so really what I did want to start with, which was, I know it was a, a, a sort of circular talk to get you here, but um, what I really did want to start with is Collins Street. So Collins Street, you've all, some of you will have had to like go down it in order to get here today. Um, and when you get home from here, I want you to Google this image, 1840 Collins Street. And it's in a lithograph um, that was done of exactly what Collins Street looked at that point in time. It is six years to the day after uh, Melbourne was settled and founded. And that image changed my life. And I think this is why I'm going to start here. I grew up on a farm 
I grew up in the bush. I grew up surrounded by my people and my culture. Uh, and I was lucky. And it hit a point when um, in order for me to start earning money and in order for me to get an education, I needed to leave the safety of my home. So I came down to Melbourne. Um, and lucky for me, I happened to be a Coolin woman. So um, the Coolin elders and the Coolin family down here that were entering the boomerang, they looked after me because that's what would have happened in old ways. So they did it um, in, in young ways. And my, my path has been a bit, bit weird. I've studied a lot of things. One of the, one of the things I studied um, before I became a museum worker and you all heard all of those things about me was, was law. Um, and I went, went down that path for about eight years. And the reason Collins Street in this image changed my world, and I, I, I hope you look it up, is because I was always taught what Melbourne looked like six years beforehand. So right here where we are, I mean, this was Riverland. This was like fertile country. Um, just the amount of kangaroos, even as I get, I, get, I have kids quite often who um, I run education programs and they'll ask me about, about what it will look like. And so indulge me, if you will. I'm going to treat you like you're eight now. <laughs> Shut your eyes. And I'm going to paint a picture for you of the beautiful Yarra River. So uh, about 100 metres away over there, you would have been able to see the beautiful big waterfall. I would, you would have heard it from where you're sitting right now. There would have been uh, eucalypts all along the bank up there, um, prime, prime, like, country for that kind of stuff. There would have been grass plains quite close, close in to the, um, to the river because you'd want to keep your food source quite close. There would have been kookaburras laughing, as you could hear as you moved through the day. This all, like like... Take a moment, I'm going to be, be silent for a moment and I know I've monologued, but like, take a moment and I just want you to listen to what you can hear. Now imagine hearing the cicadas going and the frogs that were down in that river. You possibly even could have heard, depending on how close we are, because we're quite close here, like a dolphin jump out because they used to come down this far in, even further. Um, and the reason the Collins Street image changed my life is because you open your eyes and it looks like this. It took six years, basically, to look like this. And when you understand and you think about change, and I think about change a lot for myself, um, I don't know how to comprehend everything in my environment from the physical structures and the way it looked to how I was allowed to engage with it changing. And that's why I've begun with Collins Street. Well, I want to invite um, Janet to think about where, which thread you'd like to pull at. And you can take your time looking through the net as well. So if we take the theme of change and what changes us, I'm already changed by what I've heard, you know, the way... And you may have heard the words before, but differently. But now you hear them. And I just want to say that it wasn't lo that long ago, a week or so ago in the domain, that I heard a kookaburra. And I'm sure hoping that we're going to bring nature back and just acknowledging behind that we're, you know, more or less on the banks of the Birrarung, the River of Mist. And... This has influenced me too very profoundly in my life because I'm not originally from Melbourne. I'm a newcomer. 
And I've chosen as an image a man who lives around the corner from me. He's a fisherman. And so <laughs> boats, net, fisherman. That was what I chose to start with. And even more fundamentally, the place where I live is called Esplanade West. And yet it doesn't run alongside the bay. And I was always puzzled as to why there would be an esplanade that's not along the bay. And I've been learning and learning and learning about how I'm actually living opposite what was once a long, tapering saltwater lagoon that was part of the delta of the Yarra River. And... Dugger Beasley, the fisherman, his family have fished in Port Melbourne for generations. And recently, he, his commercial fishing licence was resumed. But I want to pick up a little bit about the work that Bryn and Giselle and Ed are doing. Because when I moved to Port Melbourne, he had his boat on the street. And he used to paint and refurbish boats that were sometimes over 100 years old. And he'd be on the street and he'd be working on them. And everyone who walked past would talk to him. And he'd tell them stories about his family and fishing and the lagoon. And that was how I began my learning about Port Melbourne through Dugger, because I couldn't walk past and he'd say, hey, Jan, and I'd have to stop and he'd tell me a yarn about Port Melbourne and the lagoon. But what's got me interested in the process of urban change was not long after I moved to Port Melbourne, you know, it began the seismic change from what it had been to what it's become. And so I just became very, very interested in that. And over time, apartments came, new people came to live, and people started complaining about the boat being on the street. And they complained and they complained and the complaints got louder and louder until the council, in spite of all their strategies and policies about liveliness and activation, they've got their local laws and their local laws said that the boat didn't have a permit to be on the street. And so Dugger had to take his boat inside his um, yard, shut the gate and now we've lost the benefit of having those stories told. So I think it's just a fantastic notion that Bryn and Giselle have brought to life to use the boat as a vehicle for telling stories. Uh, the gag we always go with is it's a, merely a vessel to tell stories, but yeah. <laughs> a vessel, sorry. <laughs> and that's, that's our pun quota for the, for the night, I think. Um, and so Janet um, was talking to me earlier that Dugger probably has a, a real fishing net, so I don't think he'd be too impressed with our, our um, a makeshift shipping, uh, fishing net that we have. But both of you sort of have touched on, the, your threads really touch on that idea of that transition and that change. Um, some of those transitions are, have been violent. Others have been sort of come from a kind of people not wanting things in their backyard and a, and a desire to to control the space that they're in, but there is a kind of theme across both of them in how we think about what drives change as well. I might ask Isabel if you'd like to pick out a thread, something that's caught your eye or something that you want to bring up. 
Oh, if we want to go on change, we'll start with um, a bit of language stuff. Uh, that's Tanwarang. Uh, it shares a little bit of likeness with the Woiwarang and Bunwarang. Um, Fight to show love to country. This is a phrase, I suppose, in uh, my language. Um, and I think that it embodies place in a different way. I mean, it sort of links as well. I'm, I'm, I'm a weaver, um, so I'm very bad at sticking to one thread because there's literally always hundreds going on around me. Uh, if you ever enter my house, you'll understand because it's like covered in grass from the beginning, which I, I don't even live at the beginning, but oh, sorry, that's where it is. Uh, right at the end. But um, I've also got this um, little grey-led um, artwork in here that I did, which is sort of um, one image of women's creation, but not like a s super sacred one, but, uh, you know, everyone can look. Uh, women's creation, we're wonderful. Um, but I think uh, those two things for me are combined. So this notion of country and what is place and what is country is very different for me or the way I was ta taught when I, when I grew up. Um, a country is us as well. So country is literally everything, everything. It is from be below the ground. It is all of the minerals and the rocks. It is what we can physically see on top. It is the air between us that we cannot physically see. It's the river moving through. It's the weather. It's every living thing that lives on top of it. So, yeah, when you understand that that is the definition of country and then you revert back to Monganal and Bikut's fight to show love to country, it, it, it kind of changes. And I was taught particularly, I mean, it, it's what's driven my activism and it's what's driven my understanding of place and of love is that to fight or to, to, to care for our land is also to care for ourselves. To care for ourselves is to care for the land. The big disconnect that we have is that we have, we, 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 we're only doing one, one part of that relationship. We're only, we're, only, we're only caring for ourselves. We're not actually uh, caring for the land. And I think that the reason that this is so important in terms of understanding place is because, um, I mean, I always have to say I was taught because I'm not the original thinker of any of these thoughts, yeah. But um, I, I was taught that we are, like, we are both the most important thing that exists in the universe, but also the least important thing that exists. That grass that you see out there holds just as much value intrinsically in it as you do. And that is a really, really hard concept for humans to grab because of ego, yeah? You know, because we want to be more than that grass. You know, I have a mind. Does that grass have a mind? Like, what's it actually contributing versus what I'm contributing to the world? Well, that, that plate of grass is contributing an ecosystem. Like, there is whole worlds of things that exist because it does. That we, we, that we simply couldn't help, help, help. We couldn't, we couldn't, they don't live off our bodies. They live off the, the, the land. To understand that you are both the smallest and most profound thing in the universe all at the one time, to understand that part of loving yourself is actually to love the land, and when you're not loving the land, to me, it shows me that there's something wrong, that you're not loving, that you don't, that you don't love yourself. 
because your environment, everything we perceive, everything we see, everything we touch, actually the way we perceive it is a reflection of us. There you go, Janet. Would you like to, to, to take up from that? Waxing some Aboriginal philosophy? Well, the urban planners here, the urban change makers, and I think if we can proceed with, you know, some of that um, humility and some of that understanding to the way we go about urban change, you know, we'll have to do better than we've done so far. And that's the kind of thinking, well, that when I explore places that I like to have in mind that, you know, there are many stories equally of degradation, lack of care, lack of understanding that, you know, are part of the story of our last 200 years. But, like, what we really want is how do we go from what we have done to what we might do. And so that's why I, I've taken this image, which I'm showing to Isabel. And this is about the Birrarung again. It shows a picture of a flooded laneway. And it always puzzled me, this flooding laneway, because it didn't seem to be an apparent reason why it should flood. Until I learned, it's a laneway in the suburb of Montague, just very close to the city. And Montague is actually very, very close to the river. But there's so much development between Montague and the river that you don't even realise that there's that connection with it. And so where this localised flooding is, it's the Birrarung, it's the Yarra River actually coming up the drain when the tide is high. So it's saying, you know, the river is still here. <laughs> the river is here and it's really making itself known to us. And um, with Bryn and others who are here today, we're working on Fisherman's Bend and trying to bring some of this um, understanding to the best that we can in the way we approach the urban renewal in Fisherman's Bend and how we can bring this water, which has been this river, which has been so poorly used over the colonial period, but how we can embrace water, bring water back, respect water, and bring some of the plants that would have existed here before colonisation back. And so this is, I think, our earnest desire, isn't it, to work in this way with a little bit more sensitivity than has perhaps been exhibited in some urban planning projects before. But there are many, you know, challenges of the planning system and the development um, imperative that make, you know, make this challenging work. But when you are inspired to do it by understanding the importance of it, that it makes your resolve stronger. Um, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that's true, not just for the environment, natural environment, but also um, in, so most of the work that I do outside of the boat is um, large-scale urban renewal projects and coming up with a new vision for, or not a new vision, but a vision for the future of a precinct and then putting in place a whole range of, you know, strategies and funding and finance and whatever to achieve that vision. Um, 
and figuring out what the future looks like can be a very daunting task and is, is really fraught with um, danger and whether it's about the environment or whether it's about the economy or whether it's about the community there, it's normally more about understanding the past than it is about predicting the future. You, you, the more you talk to people and dig around and find stories of their connection to place and what they did there 10, 15, 30 years ago, it's all the seeds uh, for, for what the future of place looks like. And I think that's where the profession goes most wrong. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, Docklands is really a great example of that, where it, it's, it kind of doesn't speak to any part of the past. And as a result of not knowing its past, it was very hard to make it a compelling story about its future. Um, so hopefully we, Janet's right, and we are learning a few things from those kind of... Um, almost utopian ideas that the, the future is somehow separated from the past where it's, it's so much richer um, by digging deeper. And I think sort of drawing all of that together, you know, where we started with what you were talking about, Isabel, that, that idea that everything is interconnected and the way that we think about place, space, the environment around us, is, it's not, when we are not separate to it, is, is an idea that does get picked up in kind of theoretical human geography, but in terms of then how it translates through the planning, we kind of end up in these conversations that focus very much on us, the humans, the built form, um, and we find ourselves in, like, in this moment really questioning how we can sustain that as well, and sort of seems untenable. Um, I have a thought about that. Uh, <laughs> such a surprise. Um, <laughs> academic black woman, she's full of thoughts. Um, but no, I have a, I have a, a of course, um, everything is interconnected, yeah? So everything is interconnected. I mean, I don't understand why people, like, why this is, like, a, a new concept for people. It's like, hello, look, literally look outside. Look at the wind. So take wind, yeah? Take wind. Wind touches literally every living thing on top of the landscape. It can also affect what is going on underneath the landscape. Um, we humans, I think, it's, I think it's our condition, right? We get so into ourselves. We're so human-centred. Literally our worlds revolve around humans. We have forgotten that everything that we have a relationship with has a relationship with us. So we have a relationship with place, yeah? But place also has a relationship with us. We have a relationship with nature, with the trees, with the animals, with the environment... And they too have a relationship with us. Every living thing, every inanimate thing has a piece of knowledge attached to it, yeah? There is something that we can learn from. Every living, like every, it, nan, I, don't, I don't even know, I haven't found the right word to describe things because like thing is so not grand enough for how I feel about everything. Um, but like... It, it, Everything has a body of knowledge to teach us. So, like, one big example that I have that is in Australians' um, thoughts is the thylacine, yeah? The Tasmanian tiger. So, the Tasmanian tiger, it used to run all across the mainland too. People, people don't know this. The Tassie devil as well, that was actually the, like, full-on whole continent devil and tiger. But um, that's all right. That's all right. I mean, um, uh, it, it, the tiger was already, the thylacine, he was already on his way um, out of the mainland for various different reasons, but obviously colonisation hastened that process. Um, but the reason I've brought him up is not actually to, to talk about that. It's to talk about the great lament I have at the loss of the thylacine. 
because the thylacine taught us certain things. It taught us certain things about movement, which we can't see anymore. It also taught us about water. You know thylacines? I mean, you, you don't know this because they don't exist anymore, but they have an uncanny ability, yeah, to find and track water. Um, they were kind of like, I mean, they were the apex predators on this land. They operated as the dingoes. Um, we, as a species, humanity as a species, have lost out on a whole range of knowledge because we allowed that animal to die. Um, so what I mean there by that, that to me was a failure of us to understand our relationship. The thylacine was still there. It knew that we were involved in its future, past and present. Like, it knew. It was us who wasn't acknowledging that and who ultimately allowed the thylacine to go the way it did because of that. Um, it's when we forget that every step that we take has an impact. And, like, that has power to me. Every step that I take has an impact. That has immense power to me. And, 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 and you get to decide. You get to decide. Like, that's the exciting thing about place and about people and about country is country is so patient. Country is so loving. It literally lets you be you. It lets you be what you need to be, who you need to be. There is no prescription. There is no thought about what you need to be doing, about who you need to be, who you need to love, what you need to eat, what you need to wear. There's, there's none of that. Country literally, it's right now. It is sitting here waiting for you to do and be what you want. It's, it's sitting here waiting for me. It's, it's giving me space. How, how, how beautiful. This is. This thing that I have a real relationship with that I am never able to give back to provides me everything that I need to survive, but also space to talk and hear and connect and laugh. I mean, I hope you laugh at some point in my, like, I can get a bit doom and gloom, but... Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave you with a slight tie, Janet, because I realise, like, I seem to end on profound notes that it's like, where we go next? Um... But I just want to want to also say that um, part of the key thing in that, in that understanding that everything is interconnected, um, you did hand me this picture before, and it, it was where I was going to go. It was my my father. Um, there was this one day I was out bushwalking with my father. Uh, it's it's something we do rarely together because he has bad news and a bad back and a bad everything. So. Um, it's something we rarely do together. And we were, we were climbing up this mountain. And so my country, it's, it's river and mountain country. Um, but we were up, up in the, the highlands, in the, in the mountains. So um, no rivers anywhere near this particular mountain. Um, and he was saying to me, based on the trees, he was going, oh, Bella, something's wrong here. Something's wrong. The water's not running correctly. Um, and I didn't believe him because... I'm a pretty adept child, and it was my father, yeah, and I was like, water's wrong, what would you know? Um, so, right, we're, we're coming up, 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 up this hill, and he's like, mm, nah, I reckon someone's interfered with this mountain and made the course run differently, and there's going to be water down there. And I was like, mm, you gammon. Uh, nah, this, no one's been like, no, this, this be Broadford. No one care about Broadford. I mean, for those of us who are Broadfordians, we, we do care about Broadford. Um, but for those who don't care about my tiny little regional town 100 k's away, um, anyway, he was like, no, 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 this is, this, is, this is it, Bella, this is it. And so we do actually get to the top of this, like, precipice and we look over. Um, and there was, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a natural dam because the hill was 
freaked with in order to make it, um, but it certainly wasn't a human-controlled um, dam. And so he was ac actually correct um, purely by sort of the trees and the way the water was running off the mountain. Um, you could even see the way the water was running off the mountain through the trees. It's, it's, it's um, not something that I had done before that moment in time. But the reason that I wanted to bring um, that up sort of tangentially with this and, and with what Janet said about water, um, part of the integral understanding that I have of place and what ties me to place um, and ties me to country, and it's all place and country are all like intertwined, as I think everything is, um, uh, is people. So part of my connection to place, part of my connection to that place, so that place that uh, we were actually visiting is traditional clan land of mine. Um, literally, ancestors been run around that particular, like I was walking on land that they'd walked thousands and thousands of years. Um, but I realised in that one moment, I would have no understanding of place and of who I was and of how important it was without the people around me. Um, Um, when Janet, that that last point about people teaching you everything that we know, everything that we understand in terms of knowledge is comes from people. We think, I think, white people think that it comes from books, it comes from institutions, but actually, fundamentally, it's still a social process. And when Janet and I were um, chatting before the talk, you said something to the same effect. You said everything that you know is something that someone taught you. Um, so I thought I'd sort of just remind you of that um, and I want to invite you to think about where you'd like to go. Just hold it. Okay. I just thought um, I'm, I'm normally somebody who really likes to prepare carefully but I'm having to pull on the threads that Isabel has offered me and Isabel's a weaver and I just thought and then we were talking about people and how people connect you to place so I thought I'd just acknowledge my sister who's here and my sister is um, gifted in anything that involves threads and yeah, <laughs> yeah and she um made this for me once because, you know, I love blue and I love water and she felted this piece. So I just wanted to acknowledge her and also to say that in addition to learning from people, I've learned you know, everything from walking around or riding, you know. So in the port places around Fishman's Bend, Docklands and Port Melbourne, just constantly walking around. And if there's anyone I can find to talk to, I talk to them. And I thought I'd just tell a little anecdote. Um, in Beacon Cove, which is not everybody's idea of, you know, lively suburb, but on the promenade there sit every morning two elderly Port Melbourne men and they've got a dog called Ruby, and or one of them's got a dog called Ruby, and they're there every morning, and people walk past, and everyone stops to say hello, to see if they can entice Ruby to just lift her paw for them, <laughs> or extend her paw, and so, and they, so just through the act of them sitting there, 
They don't talk very much, but they've become this real knitting place in Port Melbourne, which is really quite a wonderful thing. And Fred used to read the meters in Port Melbourne, the electricity meters. So he knows the story of every single house in Port Melbourne. And not only that, he used to go and read the meters in Fisherman's Bend, and so he just knows the territory. But I have to come back to the river because, um, you know, Isabel was talking before about how her father knew about which way the river ran. And it's taken me, I suppose you, you know things and then you know them a bit more and you keep on knowing them a bit more. But, you know, the audacity with which the colonial engineers, you know, Sir John Coode, just looked at the curves in the Yarra River and just said, oh, you know, that curve's just inconvenient to shipping, you know, it's um, meaning ships can't get up this river very efficiently. And, you know, I think it would just be a really good idea just to cut this canal through the river in order to create the course of the rivers we know today. And um, it's only, I've only come to appreciate a little bit, just, you know, what an audacious act you know, in the colonial sense of engineering, but in the sense of interfering with something so basic to life as the river by altering its course. And, you know, now we see the rivers just as this sort of channel going out to the bay, but of course it was this huge floodplain rich in plants and bird life and, yeah, it was just an amazing place. And um, just this week for Port Places, I came across a story of this guy called Len Robinson. And he'd catch the bus down to Garden City and go walking towards the Yarra River. And um, this was in 1949. And walking towards the Yarra River, he saw two birds that he'd never seen before. And he just noticed them without knowing what they were. And it was only when he went back that he learned that they were orange-bellied parrots now, orange-bearly parrots are not yet extinct, and we hope they never will be, but they are amongst the most critically endangered of all Australian birds. And that was a bird that was found, you know, we could walk there within an hour. And it's just, it, I suppose these stories of loss, which are many of the stories that I've got, are actually in the seeds of that loss and the sorrow of that loss are also the sort of seeds of wanting something different, you know, wanting to work towards regeneration, reconciliation. Um, so those stories become powerful motivators. I mean, I can, okay. Um, so, so that just makes me think of this really... Um, uh, and you, you, you wanted me to start with it, Janet, but I'll, I'll indulge you now, halfway through. Um, it, it is another phrase in my language. It's one of my favourite phrases, yeah. It means to protect, to hug, to hold all. Um, so, like, that baby, uh, that tree. That, that, that tree, in it, that's, that's its job, whereas, you know... Um, I mean, it's not the baby's job to, to, to cherish and protect it. That would be us. Um, 
but I want to talk about that, Mana um, Gamal, because I want to talk about weaving, yeah, because it's it just um, hope and loss, hope and loss and place, right? So um, I grew up primarily on my country. I've travelled little bits around my, my country, the sort of country I described to you before. Um, and uh, when I was 16, uh, t- till now, my parents are still in that town. We settled in on, in on this one little town. Um, and about 15 k's away was the major regional town. And I'm not going to say it. Many of you will 100% work out exactly where I'm talking about. But 15 k's away, there is a um, uh, army base. 15 k's away, there is this major, major town. 100 k's out of Melbourne. Um, pretty depressing place. Low socioeconomic, lots and lots of drugs. Um, the town's only achievement that it feels that it can brag about happens to be the army base that's 15 k's away. So um, as you go into the hospital, the local hospital that you, you know, in case you ever are sick, that's happened to me. I've been sick and needed to go to the hospital. And in, on my, my way down to the hospital, um, you have beautiful decorative army tanks on either side of the road just leading you to the hospital. That's the kind of vibe, yeah, of the town, yeah? So y- you got it. That's in a nutshell. Um, right? So, uh, this beautiful town. And um, there are blackfellas, us blackfellas, we're everywhere all the time. Like, people, people, it's, it always amazes me. I, like, people walk up to me all the time, you're the first Aboriginal I've ever met. And I'm always like, the first one you know? Like, come on, the first one who's like, like, come on. Well, we everywhere. Um, and, and, and we in this town too. Um, anyway, so so they decided to, to we were building this um, Aboriginal health unit. Well, by we, I wasn't involved at all. I was 12. Um, so I was peripherally like in the rooms because I was the cute bub that everyone gave like food and like, oh, let her play in the corner while we do the work. Um, that was me. But so we got this um, Aboriginal health unit together. And uh, the Aboriginal health unit had been going about 10 years. So then maybe I was, I was a bit older, I was about... 18 this time. I'd just gone off to uni and I'd come back, um, come back down to the ho- you know for the holidays, and we had this big meeting. Um, they'd realised we'd had this Aboriginal um, uh, engagement unit for the hospital, and yet the black fellas still didn't want to go in. So funny. So they were like, "What are we going to do? We're going to ha- we have to transform this space." You know, this is the the literally within a hundred well a hundred cases Melbourne, but like within um. 30 to 40 Ks, it's the major regional um, hospital and they're having a major uh, hard time engaging what they know is a larger percentage of the population than, say, in Melbourne. So um, this group of women got together and um, there were Aboriginal women, uh, non-Aboriginal women, community women, just basically women who cared and were like, we're going to do something about transforming this place because this hospital is also like the most depressing place in the world. You come here to die. Um, So... They did this really simple thing. They only had 60 bucks. So they were like, shit, what are we going to do with 60 bucks? How are we going to make this place a different place? Uh, I'm so impressed with these women. They decided to go out and buy grass. So they bought um, uh, four different lamandra bushes and um, uh, one zone, which didn't really work out, although it should have, but it didn't, but whatever. Um, and they just planted them. And then nothing happened for about a year as they were growing and they were getting there. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what happened, it was like overnight these lamandras had a growth spurt and they were suddenly up at my head. Like, I'm a tall woman, I'm 175. <laughs> you know, they were, they were big. Um, 
And it was super, super exciting because all of a sudden, so I grew up uh, with the women of my life always weaving around me. Uh, it wasn't always something I chose to do uh, until later on, but um, it was always happening around me. Uh, so it had been happening in my, my family, but not necessarily in the broader community. Um, within a year of those, those, those plants being placed there, uh, the Seymour Hospital began to cite tiny little native birds who began to come in and use them as, um, uh, like, to hide under. Um, uh, they began to cite native bees, like, like the little blue banded bees, like super rare bees. Um, animals were living in there. But also they began to find that the Aboriginal community started to engage because there were weavers going in and harvesting that grass. And there were workshops happening there because we felt safe to run that space. And then all of a sudden, the whole, uh, without, without the health industry, without that hospital actually doing anything to engage a single person, but giving us 60 bucks to buy some grass, we suddenly have a place. And I think that the transformation of place can be so simple and easy. You just need to think about who are the people that you want in it. And this instance at that hospital, they wanted weavers and that's how you bring us in, get grass. No, we've sort of come to the end of the unravelling of the threads on our end. And so I wanted to uh, invite people in the audience to share with them what ties into place or what these threads have got you thinking about, whether that's memories, you know, what's your patch of earth, like Isabel said, that makes you feel like it's the centre of the world? And true God, if you don't have one, go find, go look. Like, go look, it's a human thing. Like, for you not, it's like, it's, it's li like... Loving the land is literally a human thing. If you haven't felt that, you are missing out on a part of humanity, like a, a, the experience that is human. Sorry, I can't be like more forceful, but also <laughs> less forceful about that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Oh, Mike, that's heat. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got a roving mic uh, over here. Anyone feel brave enough to share something deeply personal? Something we haven't touched on so far, but in Port Melbourne, you can't talk to anyone for very long before they talk about smells. So in Port Melbourne, um, in the early years of the century, there were two dominant smells. One was the smell of baking ginger nuts that came from the um, biscuit factory, and the other was the smell of burning tallow that came from the abattoirs that were on the banks of the Yarra River, just there in Fisherman's Bend. And so if the north wind was blowing, you had the smell of burning animal flat, fat. If the southerly was blowing, you had the smell of ginger nuts. So I just think that smell is such a trigger also for memory, and I wonder <laughs> if that just sparks anything? Oh, that actually, there's still a lot of smells down in Fisherman's Bend uh, and one of, the, one of them is, that's really distinct is Vegemite. So Vegemite's been made down there for 110 years and despite the fact that the area around it's tra transitioned a lot, um, Vegemite's still there and you kind of wonder why are you here? You could be in any industrial estate anywhere and I have asked the uh, CEO that before because it kind of doesn't make sense. They're on, you know, $150 million of land and he goes, oh... We tried to make it somewhere else, but the vats don't produce the same taste in Vegemite. So whatever is in those 150-year-old vats is, or maybe it's 110 years old, that's uh, distinct. 
Hi everyone, my name is Arthur. Um, I'm a, uh, I come from refugee, resettled refugee experience as a Kurd. Um, so in, I'm indigenous to northern Iraq. And actually, thinking of place, I flew over. I haven't been back to Iraq, and I don't think I will be for many years, but I flew over it on the way to London uh, almost two years ago. And it was um, odd to have such a bird's eye physical relationship with a space that lives as a concept in your mind for years and years and years. Um, that was, yeah, a really odd, interesting relationship with that physical space. Yeah, just wanted to share that. Hi, I'm Molly. Um, I'm Isabel's cousin, clearly cannot speak as good as her, but I have a really strong connection to place. I'm Wemba Wemba Yorta Yorta. I was privileged in the way that when I was a baby, my parents took me back to our country and we lived on the land with no running water, no power, and the connection that I feel when I get near to that place, the peace comes down. When I drive away, the stress comes up. But it's even um, when Isabel was speaking about we, we, have a, like we have a relationship with the tree, but the tree also has a relationship with us. So we also leave memories and trees hold feelings. So places also hold spiritual feelings as well. So there's little places where I would walk when I was a kid and I'd be like, oh, I can't go there. And then when I was older, now would be like, don't go there. So if we stop and we tune in, we can actually feel around us and understand what's coming on and not just what we're putting out. And I was, yeah, I was very privileged to have that place and I'm very grateful. Hey, everyone. I'm from Germany, not from uh, um, Melbourne, sorry. And I feel the same because I'm from a country in Germany. They're all full of mountains and woods and everything, but it's not there. Sorry for my English. And I live my whole life in this country and see the mountains and everything. And now I see, I don't know the word in English, Windräder in German means there are uh, things to get energy. Ah, yeah, thanks. And every mountains is full of this... Winter Winter, I know it, yeah. And you see all the night this blinking red light from this thing and no mountains, no woods, no everything. And my, my um, children life, my brother and me, we go to this mountain and walk and run and it's not there. Yeah, I feel it, I know how it feels. Maybe while uh, we let you sort of simmer a little bit more on that thought, I maybe want to invite Isabel to share um, something you told me when we first started talking about language and how language, um, the words that you use for different things can mean lots of... I'm, I'm going to butcher it, so why don't I just give Isabel the mic? Sorry, I did write this down. Um, so... Uh, so you are going to find something personal about me now. Um, my, 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 we're going through a few um, issues in my family. There's a bit of family health stuff going on. Um, and I've become a carer recently. And so my brain, 
um, just just in this interim period while I'm ticking over onto my new responsibilities, is having a bit of trouble remembering, ran like, well, not random things. This isn't a random thing I'm about to tell you, but my brain is having a little bit of trouble remembering things. So please excuse me. I am about to talk some hardcore language stuff, as in my, my traditional language, and um, I would rather read from a note than insult an ancestor and get it wrong. So um, please excuse me. I'm going to read from my notes um, for, 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 for this. They're not extensive notes, though, so you should be right. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, landscape land and landscape seen as body and body seen as landscape. So this is a concept, I don't know, um, I don't know if you know many Aboriginal folks, right? Um, and not all Aboriginal folks are the same, so maybe it's just the circles of Aboriginal folks I run in. Um, but uh, also maybe it's my elders or my teachers or, you know, um, I'm very interested in the land and I suppose they are too. And um, uh, one of the things that we're, we're innately always, always told, always told in English is, um, you know, you know um, body is land, land is body, right? And it, it sort of vaguely means nothing. And um, I mean, it doesn't vaguely mean nothing. It means a lot to me, yeah. But like there's also that kind of interpretation that you can make on the top level where you're like, oh, okay, body is land, cool. Um, um, but... It's, it's so much more than that. And um, recently I've um, begun doing a lot of language work, yeah. So um, uh, five years ago, six years ago now, no, seven, seven, um, I'm getting old. Um, seven years ago we, uh, I was involved in one of the reclamations of um, Tenderum happening in Fed Square, if you don't know about that. Um, and I um, wrote, wrote with my sister, better credit my sister because she gets real cranky when I don't, Hannah Morphy-Walsh, um, uh, we wrote together a whole bunch of um, songs in language um, that have then become the basis of our uh, ceremony money songs now. Um, so language has become increasingly and increasingly something that I'm working with. Uh, my language is um, sleeping still. I'm waking it up. I'm part of a team of people who are waking it up. Um, we, we weren't allowed to speak it for a number of years. And we're having to wake up our language through the few recordings that were made and a lot of documentation. And also the tiny little bits, not tiny, but the stuff that we kept in families, secret ways, because we used to get punished, yeah, if we were openly seen speaking about this. So, uh, recently my understanding of all of this has changed again. And I understood that my understanding of this was all wrong because it was formed in English. Um, and I was going back through my language and I was going through all these individual words. Um, I was doing this project on seasons, uh, which you can Google my name and find out about in a month's time. Um, uh, so I was doing this project on seasons and I was going through um, my dictionary and our language. And um, I realised something really, really, really uh, made me so grateful. My old people were such clever, clever people. They encoded how we feel about land and body in our language. So, um, for example, dabu is the word we use for both skin and bark. Galk refers to our bones, but it's also the word we use to describe pieces of wood, logs, sticks or stumps, darak or darang, refer to both our arms, tree branches, but also our brothers. Like how integral we see the relationship that we have with landscape so, so important 
that we see it as the same as the relationship we have with ourselves. We see the relationship that we have with landscape so important that we see it as the same as the relationship that we give our family. That's, 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 that's huge and big in understanding place. And finally, in this one little um, uh, big language research session I had, um, uh, I, I felt like I, I came across this word, yeah, um, and this word has changed my understanding of myself and it has forevermore. And it's the word mon. And it means three different things. Number one... Uh, scrubland or bush. Now, this is particularly important to me because the clan land I come from is scrubland and bush. Like, I'm right that, that like, so Mon is a description of literally, like, uh, uh, of my country's expression of myself. So there's that. And Mon, number two, the, 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 the second meaning for that word is healing. And, like, healing in terms of... Uh, Janet and I had an argument, sorry, to, that was a bit of an aggressive tap. Maybe we can argue about that. Um, Janet and I had an argument and, um, you know, we, we reconciled and we came together and we have moved forward from that we've healed, yeah? So that, that version of the word healing. But then there's a third um, meaning in there again, which is ritual healing. Um, so for us, that is an actual process of your community outside of you recognise and you it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not something that happens to you. It's something that happens with your... your, your it's your, your process. Um, they they recognise that, that things are not okay. You are not okay. And there needs to be some form of community um, healing. Thank you, Isabel. I think, um, you know, the lack of being able to express in, in English and the richness that you get from your own language is something that um, we're really honoured for, for you to share with us. Sorry, yeah, so, so, sorry, I've, I've regained my thought. Um, so, Mon, and that's why Mon has changed, like, that's why Mon has meant so much to me because in that one moment as well, I was able to understand myself in a way I had never understood myself in the world. I was able to understand how when there is a particular place in the world that I walk out and I have this feeling inside my soul and everything is okay and everything is calm and that might not be the reality of my life but for that one like brief beautiful moment when you are walking across the country everything is okay and whole and that is mon it is both the bush and the scrubland and it is healing all wrapped up in one and that is what a connection with place and a relationship with place is it, it is it is healing and love and, and recognition of what's around all wrapped up in this one thing. Um, and I also wanted to say thank you to um, those who shared uh, 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 our, our, our visitors and, and those who are refugees here as well because I think that um, finding place in that, in that context is even harder, particularly um, with the way in which this country um, talks about those who are doing that. Um, I think it's also really interesting because there are there are moments that as a first person's person, um, uh, uh, there are situations with people who come from refugee backgrounds where we connect and um, that's fucked um, for both of us, like every, for everyone. Um, uh, but I just wanted to say uh, 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 that's hard and thank you. I, I see you. Thank you, Isabel. Uh, I think it's a 
beautiful and powerful and a sobering point to end on. So thank you so much, both of you, for sharing so, so much of yourself, so much of your history, of your family. And thank you to those who will also shared aspects of themselves. Um, it really, I'm feeling quite moved. And so um, thank you. And uh, so if you could have a round of applause, that's appropriate. Yeah. Um, but if you want to find out more information, uh, just look us up on Facebook, either slash or, or spelt O-A-R. So that is the last pun of the day. And on Instagram, either underscore or. So thank you again to our panel. Uh, and I know I've got a head full of uh, unravelling thoughts as a result of that. So thank you so much. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.